Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. This is Ryan Frederick from AWH, and this is Beyond the Roadmap. And my guest for this episode is Andrew Hellard. And but you go, do you go by Andrew or Andy, or do you care? Andy's fine. Okay. Andy is the director of product management at Matic. So wanted to get into a variety of things, but maybe we can start out with since many people may not be familiar with Matic, since the company is um, relatively new. Do you guys consider yourselves a startup? We we are a startup. We've uh, pivoted a couple of times since we were founded in in 2014. In the current incarnation, the current sort of business approach, I'd say we're about 18 months old. So we built up from from almost ground zero about 18 months ago into what we are now. Okay. And what do you guys do? What problem do you solve? Mm-hmm. And who do you who do you solve it for? The core problem that we solve is really injecting selling homeowners insurance into the mortgage process. Uh, the central insight that our founders had, they came out of the mortgage space, is that when you go to buy a home, home insurance is a critical part of that, but you don't really find out about it until sort of the end of the mortgage closing process. So many times they'll end up delaying a loan, and that can cost banks and lenders a whole lot of money. And in fact, one of our founders... Ben Maddock came out of the mortgage compliance space, and he found that one of his clients was losing $30,000 a month in loan closing fees, delays in loan closings, due solely to homeowner's insurance. And the further insight was that in that mortgage process, you have almost everything you need about the person and about the home to get a quote. So if you could get the data that's in that digital mortgage system into a format that you could then send out to insurance carrier APIs, you could get competitive homeowners insurance quotes with almost no effort whatsoever. And really, that was the the original insight that we've been iterating on ever since. So really, the technology that we've been building is both on the lead side, that is integrating into mortgage lenders so that we can get those various leads in, which in this case is a combination of a person and a house. And then also on the other side, which is primarily where I'm involved, which is building connections to the insurance carriers so that we can get those quotes in. And then finally, building sales and marketing technology so that we can segment those customers effectively, we can market to those customers, and then ultimately we can sell insurance to them. Because that's the core of the business is that we are an insurance agency. So ultimately what we do is we sell insurance and we're compensated by the insurance carriers just like any independent insurance agent would be. Mm-hmm. All fascinating mm-hmm. because you, you are essentially bringing the, the, the solution to sort of the point of the problem, right? Or mm-hmm. at least when, when most people sort of have problem identification and then they're probably – it's a high stress, high anxiety situation, right? Many of them might be buying a home for the first time, so they're surprised by this in home insurance, you know, um, component to the process, and it, it, your ability to sort of inject at that point and and simplify the process and and address it fairly efficiently, presumably, is why 
the insurance carriers want to work with you because you are a market maker for them sort of at the point of problem and why the other people you know playing in the scenario also would see you as being valuable is that you're you're there when the problem's occurring it's sort of a rare business model because we provide very clear value to all the players so on the mortgage lender side we're solving a problem for them we are preventing loans from being delayed in closing on the insurance carrier side we're bringing business to them so we have people that need insurance at this exact moment. So we're bringing business to the insurance carrier. And to the customer, we're providing comparative quotes. So not only are we selling them a product at the time that they need that product, but we are finding the absolute best price for them at that point in time. And we've brought a lot of insurance agents in from cold calling shops, from call center agencies, where all day long, all you do is you buy a list of cold leads. And all day long, you're calling out to people, and you get, over the course of the day, maybe two people to talk to you. Whereas in our business model, all day long, you have people reaching out to us that have a need at this exact moment to buy a product. And the impact on the sales culture is incredible. The people that come in from these call center agencies, when they see the way that we work, it's just so, they just light up because their lives just got so much better. Because you're actually helping people. You know, right. it, It's amazing. Right. So let's talk a, a little bit about you and how you got into the, the product game. Was it a strategic destination or was this, you know, some sort of, of dumb luck that you've ended up, you know, caring about and thinking about products? It was, as almost all of my career has been, a random walk. So I started out as a developer. I was purely on the tech side. And I've also had a, a series of bad timings in my life, uh, mostly from when I was born, because I graduated. From when you were born? Okay. Let's well, just start at the beginning. So I graduated from undergraduate in, in IT in 2001, so right into the depths of the tech bust. So the career path I had planned out for myself, which was to move in the traditional consulting world, spend a few years there, do something else, didn't work out. So I went straight into development. I got a straight development job which was great. It worked out well. Turned out I was pretty good at it. I liked it. And then a few years later, I went back and got my MBA here at Ohio State. But then I graduated there in 2009, right into the depths of the next giant depression. So I'm not allowed to go back to school again, because I'll destroy the economy. Right, exactly. Um, but in both cases, it's worked out quite well. Because as, as I worked as a developer, I really enjoyed it. I really got to understand the tech side of it. But what became clear to me from the development side is that as a engineer, you have a limited control over what happens. And it, what I really started to understand as I moved from engineer to engineering manager is that on the tech side, you're always building somebody else's idea. And the most critical thing in business is deciding what to build. Absolutely. You know, that once you've decided what to build, Usually, you can figure the tech out. Now, right. And, and I just wonder why that, that's an epiphany that it has taken us a while. We've been building, pro we've been building software products for a good while mm -hmm. now. And it's still it's fascinating why it's an epiphany and why it took us so long to get to the point of understanding that the pre-dev stuff is actually the 80% and the development, even if it's the more costly, timely part, is really the 20. It's, it's a reverse 80-20 of how it's typically been approached, mm -hmm. right? Which is non-dev actually has more import than the actual writing of the code does. And it's a lesson we have to learn again and again. Have you ever read the, the essay, No Silver Bullet? 
No, I don't think so. It's from the the late 60s, early 70s, and it was written by the guy that program managed the release of OS 360, the IBM mainframe, Yeah, where they had 600 developers, they had you know, documentation that would have filled this room. And I read this essay a few years ago and had a big impact on me because he talks about that exactly. He said that the critical part is deciding what to do. And you can never really compress that part. You can compress the tech part. The tech's always going to get better. The tools are always going to get better. But it's very hard to compress the work to decide what the right thing to do is. And it struck me that if this was obvious to him in 1972, you know, why are we still struggling with this in, in 2018? So that, that's absolutely a great essay because so many of the lessons that took away from that project are applicable directly to, to what we're trying to do today. Yeah, uh, and I think it it speaks to the challenges that we have in because the creation process is fundamentally hard. Whether you're creating software, whether you're whether you're building a, a building, whether you're creating a painting or a sculpture or anything that that is a song, the creation process is hard, and to do it successfully and do it well is is exponentially harder. Mm-hmm. And I think that as part of that process, we often underestimate the, the the core principles that don't make it easier but give us a better chance of success through that creation process absolutely so are there any product sort of principles that you hold sacred th- that now you, you just won't violate and 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 you um you know will sort of you know fight tooth and nail to mm-hmm. to you know make sure that they stay enforced The one thing that I always try to follow is identify the problem you're trying to solve. And this is something that that I've always struggled with because if you don't answer that question first, then everything that follows is inevitably going to be poisoned by the fact that you aren't focused on the problem you're trying to solve. And that problem is always a person's problem. So if you don't keep in mind the person whose problem you're trying to solve, then ultimately what you're going to produce probably is not going to be effective. And to go back to your previous question, kind of how did I get into this? So I worked as a development manager for a number of years, and and I was very frustrated because, okay, it was obvious we were doing the wrong things, but on the tech side, I couldn't much affect it. And one day when I, I was previously working at an insurance company here in town, and we bought a piece of software from HP big piece of software, expensive buy. And I was in charge of the team implementing this particular piece of software. And over the course of about three years, I got to know the product manager at HP that owned this particular piece of software, a guy named Scott Drager. Very, very great product mind out of Chicago. And I left that insurance company. He left HP, went off to do something else. And about four years ago, he called me out of the blue. And he was the VP of product at a company called Quadiant, which was a competitor to HP in this particular software space. And he said, look, I need a guy that knows insurance. I need a guy that knows technology. Do you want to learn how to be a product manager? And I said, well, I don't know. What does a product manager do? Right. (laughs) What am I saying yes to? Um, And he described the job to me as solving precisely that problem that I had identified, but did not have a language for describing how I wanted to fix it which was ultimately identifying somebody that has a problem, identifying a problem in the market, identifying if somebody is going to be willing to pay you to solve that problem, identifying the solution to that problem, and then driving it to ultimately execution through engineering. 
And as I looked at sort of my career path, starting as a developer, working as a development manager, having some of the business side from the MBA, it was clear to me that this was the job that I'd been looking for. I just didn't know it existed. Right. So that's what I mean by a random walk and kind of how I ended up in a place that I think uses my my skill sets and the career path that got me here pretty effectively. Do you think that having that technical background and having that development experience helps you be a better product person? It can. And this is something I struggled with a lot at the beginning of my product management career because I would go and I would talk to the engineers and I would get so far down into the weeds. I'd start arguing about queuing technologies. So the at the company I was at at the time, we kind of had a split. We had what we called product marketing managers, which is what I did, which is kind of the strategic side. Then we had technical product managers that sat with the with the developers. And sometimes an agile, uh, called a product owner. Mm -hmm. So they served more of that product exactly. owner sort of role. Okay. And at the time, all of our dev work was in the Czech Republic. So we had 300 developers that only spoke Czech. I don't speak Czech. The, the technical product manager, his English is great, and he speaks Czech. So I talked to him, he talked to the developers. And, you know, I got in this giant argument about queuing technology, and he just told me to stop. A uh, guy's name is Yenda, really, really great guy. He's like, look, stop. This is not what you're supposed to do. What problem are you trying to solve? And that helped me to stop, elevate up, and articulate the business problem that the argument was really about, which was ultimately about disaster recovery. And it was like, look, I don't care how you guys do it. I just know that if this service fails, I need to be able to recover it without losing any of my data. And at that point, the conversation got a lot more valuable now, the fact that I can talk at the tech level helps, but you have to make sure that you do elevate out of the weeds so that you are talking about business problems with a technical bent and that you're not brainstorming about whether you're supposed to use RabbitMQ or something else. Yeah. Sometimes too much knowledge can uh, be harmful and, and you can you can get wrapped up in, an, in an, a debate right, that ultimately bears no fruit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you, at some point, you you decided to do the MBA. Mm -hmm. Did you know at the time that you were you were start were you starting to get some inklings when, as you were a developer that you wanted to have a little bit more purview of the business side and that you thought you might begin to sort of migrate over to, mm -hmm. to that? And is that why you did the MBA? Yeah, it really was. And as I started to get into that, it, once again, it goes back to I wanted to be able to affect things at a strategic level, which once again, on the tech side, you can on an execution, but especially in corporations, the tech guys are almost always locked out of the strategic decision making. Even your CTO, your CIO, they tend to be the guys that you call in later. And that was really my frame. I worked in insurance. I worked in healthcare. My frame was this corporate state of mind that if you wanted to affect things on a strategic level, you had to get out of tech. And so that's why I did the MBA. And when I was there, I did a lot of work on the strategy side, which was really, really interesting to me because you start thinking about business problems. And then it became clear to me that there was somehow this alignment between what the business needed to do and what the tech could do. But once again, it wasn't clear to me how to insert myself into that space, which is why uh, when, when Scott called me and, and offered me this job, I, I did have some hesitation, but I'm glad I did it because it brought me into a place that once again, I didn't know existed. Now, once I got into it, it becomes clear there's a discipline here. You go out to Silicon Valley, everybody understands what this is. But frankly, in Columbus, Ohio, in 2008, 2009, nobody was talking about product management. Right. And it's um, still a, a very new discipline in, in most parts of the world because most everybody doing product now 
started somewhere else and was applying a craft either technically or business and has probably found themselves very much like yourself in a product role, um, not intentionally, but and maybe it aligns well with skill and and behavior and and enjoyment of the work and all those kinds of things, but they've probably ended up there, you know, um, more opportunistically than strategically and intentionally for sure. When you think about Matic and the product and, and in yourself and the company, most people in product and most companies have a culture, right? They're either a technically driven product company or they're a customer driven product company or they're a brand sort of marketing you know, driven product company. And that sort of is their core and that's kind of their true north that they ultimately end up sort of going back to and sort of falling back on. What do you think your product sort of culture and tendency is? And then what do you think the company's is if it's different? I would say that our, our product culture is driven by our VP of product, who is Lee Mileniak out of San Francisco. So my my manager, our VP of products in their San Francisco office, I'm here. And then we have a number of product managers in Ukraine where we do our development work. And I would say that our product culture that, that Lee drives is really business model centric, meaning that we've identified how we're going to do business. We've identified how we're going to make money. We've identified how we're going to fit into these pre-existing ecosystems on the carrier side and how we're going to create this brand new ecosystem on the digital mortgage side. So we've identified the partnerships, we've identified where we're going to fit in the world. And so our product is driven by creating new business models. And I've talked a little bit about the key insight that, that our founders had, and that key insight was this business model that there is this, from the lender standpoint, this massive asset that they have of all of these mortgages that they have been unsuccessfully cross-selling to. And now they want to get into that cross-selling business, but they don't know how. So they need partners to do it. And so we've identified this business model. But as we invent the business model, we've got to invent the technology to support the business model, both on the digital mortgage side and then on the carrier side, and then on the sales side as well. So almost everything we do is driven by our partnerships and this new place in the ecosystem that we've created. What do your product teams look like? So you talked a little bit about San Francisco, Columbus, um, Ukraine. How do you sort of, how are your product teams structured? Do you have very sort of nimble, flexible, small product teams? And then do you have a product manager and, and sort of a designer and, and a mm -hmm. developer on a team? Or are, is product a layer that, in, and there's a bunch of developers. And if that's the case, how are you dividing responsibility of what you focus on, what the product managers in the Ukraine mm -hmm. focus on, and what San Francisco is focusing on? It is a constantly evolving process. So the way that it really works is we do have small development teams that are dedicated to a single product. So inside Matic, we have a variety of products. One is our connection to the carriers. One is our connection to the lenders. One is the sales and marketing technology. And so you have a development team that's assigned to sort of each of those because there's a certain amount of, of knowledge you need. There's not a lot of overlap between them. And then you have a product manager that's assigned to help these teams basically build the roadmap for these teams, define what, where we want to go with the product from a strategic level, break it down into a story level, and then work at a very close level with the development team to prioritize the stories across various sprints. 
So right now, our product managers are also playing a product owner role in a lot of ways. Now, the Ukrainian product managers are a lot closer to the dev team. So they do a lot more product owner, scrum management, day-to-day type things simply because of proximity. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it'll evolve over time. Um, at my previous company, I very successfully used a remote strategic product manager role with a very localized technical product manager, product owner role, but that was at a much, much larger scale. Mm-hmm. So as we grow, I don't know where we'll go. Um, and I don't know that there is one right answer. I've been thinking through this quite a bit, but trying to decide where product ownership and scrum leadership stops and where strategic product management starts is is always a challenge. Yeah, it's murky uh, for sure, because you still have to have some product um, oversight and and responsibility around, well, okay, if if we've got all of this work and all of these tasks that need to get done within some period of time, that prioritization and that sort of oversight of well and and are those tasks getting done efficiently and and as fast as they should be getting done right all of those sort of that sort of basic blocking and tackling so, someone still has to be you know sort of providing oversight over that and i'm not sure that there's a clear delineation and line between product ownership right of that sort of production process and product management over ultimately what your users are going to consume and use one begets the other Mm -hmm. and if those aren't working in an alignment and you ultimately can't sort of hit schedules and you can't support you know marketing and sales of releasing you know the product and updates and you know and those kinds of things when you want to then it doesn't really matter that you got something done in one area fast if in another area it's falling behind and isn't Mm going to keep up and you're not going to be able to release the product when you want to. Yeah. In the absence of strategic product management, an agile team will just build the wrong thing two weeks at a time. So I've, I've heard that said, I, I can't attribute it to the, to the origin, but I think that's very true. Now, one big challenge that, that I've found is execution without strategy is useless, but strategy without execution is useless. So figuring out that balance, especially in a relatively small organization. So I think we're up to about 55 people now. And so about half of that is in in engineering. We've got product, we've got sales and all of that. But ultimately, deciding what is an engineering responsibility, what's a product owner responsibility, what's a product management responsibility, I've not found a right answer. It it does seem to be something that grows organically at each company. Have you you seen examples where this has been done well? Um, Yeah, I think that there are, are, well, I think that where it's done best, it is based upon some principles around teamwork, right? Which is transparency, radical candor, effective collaboration, right? So it's not necessarily a transition point that's obvious, or it's a hierarchical sort of thing, or it's a domain expertise thing. It is really saying, okay, we now agree, this is what we're going to accomplish, right? What's the best way for us to accomplish this? And what's what's the right team size? What's mm-hmm. the right you know what's the right pace at which we're going to go at this? What is we what do we think is is reasonable? Where are you guys from a strategic perspective? Product around years of validation and research and stories, you know, et cetera. So it works. It works best, I think, in a, in a very flat, collaborative, sort of transparent 
egoless environment. Uh, So I think there are aspects and there are principles about the teamwork that matter more than the processes and the systems and the tools. I think that sort of the the ethos around how we're going to work together matters more than some of the other componentry. That's interesting. So one of the things that when, when I became a product manager that my VP of product told me was that listening was critical. As a product manager, you had to listen to the engineers, you had to listen to the salespeople, you had to listen to your customers, you had to listen to the market, you had to listen to all of those people, but ultimately, you had to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So you have to pull all of that input in. And if the product manager does not have a strategic view of where the product is going, then why do you have a product manager? So that, that's really, in my opinion, the key role of the product manager is to take all of that feedback in, synthesize it, and then decide which way we're going to go. Right. And, They're really a coalescer mm-hmm. of, of input, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you think you want to go in a particular direction and you go to the engineering team and the, engin- and the engineering team says, well, fundamentally, here are your options to approach this, and one is three months and one is six months and then one is 24 months – likely the 24-month one is probably going to be off the table because you probably are going to want that product and whatever that feature functionality is out before then, even though the 24-month one from an engineering technical perspective is going to have the most horsepower, you're probably not going to be able from a business perspective support you know, th- that engineering solution as part, of, as part of the problem. But you have to sort of get that input from engineering and all the stakeholders to be, then be able to get to a point to say, you know what, this is the right balance for us to provide a solution that we can stand behind that's going to solve the problem and that supports where we need to go from a business and is going to solve problems for customers. Yeah, as a product manager, you have to have hard conversations in multiple directions. Right. So sometimes you have to go to engineering and say, look, I know this is not going to be perfect, but due to X, Y, and Z, we have to ship it anyway. But at the same time, sometimes you have to go to executive management and say, look, if we ship this now, it's not done. (laughs) Right. Not only is it not perfect, but it's going to to do harm. Exactly. It's not going to work. Right. Um, And anytime you ship a product, you've got a range of outcomes from everything worked great to, all right, it was okay, down to update your resume. And so you just have to keep that range of outcomes in mind, you know, whenever you're having these conversations. Now, one thing I have seen, and, and I'd like to get your input on this, is some organizations I've worked with, especially software organizations that sell into the enterprise space, can become sale. Basically, product management becomes order takers from the sales department. Yep. Um, have you seen that? Have you seen any good strategies for sort of trying to avoid that particular scenario? Because it does it does crop up, especially when you're operating with with big organizations. Yeah, you can also see that pretty frequently in the startup space, right? Because you don't have customers, you need to go acquire customers, and you are sometimes vulnerable to customer requests, and customers and sales can then really become the builders of the roadmap, right? Because customers are not going to buy this if we don't build it in purple, Mm -hmm. right? And I would say, by and large, that's not true. And so sales is biased and sales has an end in mind and organizationally and as individuals. And I think that typically when sales is driving the product roadmap and sort of the product you know, footprint, it's because there is a lack of confidence and I think a lack of understanding 
from the product teams, from whether it's UX and UI and design to technical historically, of their lack of confidence then it sort of acquiesces responsibility to sales. Sales will gladly take on that responsibility because if they can direct the product mode roadmap and at any point get developed what they want to get developed, they will. Mm-hmm. Especially at the end of the quarter. Especially at the end of the quarter or in a startup. And mm-hmm. so and then you end up in these situations where you have a Frankenstein product that even if the company is successful 10, 12, 15 years into it, now you have a product that has so much technical debt and that you're so challenged to now implement and customize that you end up with a huge professional services organization because you're trying to implement and customize what is really a Frankenstein product Mm -hmm. because it was mostly a product driven by sales from a roadmap perspective. And and the the, the way to combat it is ultimately, it's a recognition that that's what's happening Right, and that's who, and that's what your identity is as a product company: is that you let sales or you let marketing sort of drive the product and the roadmap, and to be able to either one be self-aware enough to go, we're okay with that, it's worked so far, we're going to keep doing that, and you don't really value product management as a discipline, or to say, hey, this is something that we've done, it's been okay, we've made it this far. Now we have to begin to make the transition to being a a true product discipline oriented company and sales is not going to be able to make the product decisions and the roadmap decisions moving forward. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. One of the big challenges you get in the startup, which is related to that, is what is the right time horizon? So if you're in a seed round, maybe your right time horizon is six weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. You know, if you're in a Series A, maybe it's three months and, and so forth. And it's those transition points that become hard because when when are you mature enough to start thinking about six months? Yep. And you know that's something that, that we're, we've started to do now that we've really got some traction, some product market fit, is that we can realistically start talking about something we'll do 12 months from now. Whereas back when I started, I've been with Matic almost eight months now, but they're like dog years. Each month is like seven. Right. Um, well, that's the life of being in product too. E- exactly. Right? Um, where we can re- realistically start talking about a 12 month roadmap. And it's that transition in the startup world that can be, that can be a real challenge. You know, what is the right time horizon? No doubt. And I think it even becomes a challenge at the enterprise level of, you know, w- what is the, the right pace at, at, at which you should be going and, and what are the right expectations around that? And part of it is how do you balance your own business and and vision for the product and that of customers and users. Because oftentimes you might get input from customers and users that is either contrary to where you intended to go with the product or at least different enough where you have to sort of step back and say, hmm, do we take the left fork in the road or do we take the right fork in the road? How do you guys sort of, and historically, how have you sort of thought about how do you balance that customer input with your own vision for the product. Yeah, that is that is always a challenge. It's something I've struggled with because every customer has an opinion. And what we've really found is iterating very, very, very fast. You know, of course, we're still small enough that we can do that. So you can try something and go, well, that didn't work. And you can shut it down and go do something else. Now, a year from now, we'll have scaled to the point where, where we can't do that anymore. What I tend to do is collate the feedback. And I talked about taking in feedback from all the different areas, from sales, from marketing, from engineering, from customers. Customers are a data point. 
because each customer is bringing their own frame to the problem. Now, especially if you're doing enterprise type stuff, they're going to bring their own frame, their own organization, their own viewpoint. So while they bring that in there, you have to balance it against all of the other bits of feedback as well. Now, while ultimately the customer is the one paying you, many times they don't know exactly what it is that can be done. They know they have a problem, and they know they want a purple button right here that will solve their problem. But all their vision is limited by the fact that they don't know the world of things that we could do. And that's really what product management has to bring in, is to cut through all that cruft and the request for a purple button to understand what problem this person is trying to solve. Go out, talk to your engineering, your product, your design, and then come up with that world of the possible to actually deliver it to them. And, you know, frankly, that's what Silicon Valley does so well is it creates things that we didn't know we needed. You know, it takes something, you know, problems that we just kind of accepted as being intractable and then finding a new way to, to ultimately deliver, you know, something, something to solve that problem. Yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting conundrum because you have to sort of stay uh, confidently convicted to you know the sort of the vision and 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 where you're headed with the product but you have to be flexible enough to be able to say okay what's the market telling us what are customers telling us what what feedback loops are we getting and how misaligned with mm-hmm. our vision for the product are they and how much do we pay attention to them and how much do we listen to them i think one of the things that talking about sort of enterprise products and enterprise companies it doesn't take very long because i've seen it as as fast as a company, a startup gets to to 50 or so customers, certainly at 100. And there's like this in graph, there's this inverse relationship and graph that you can draw that says the bigger you get, the further away from your customers that you get. And it sort of happens as a force of nature because the bigger you get as a company and the more processes that you have and the more systems that you have, you end up working inside of the, your own business as much, if not more, than you end up working externally and sort of engaging with customers and paying attention to customers and serving customers. And so we gravitate away from customers and we end up then building products and it sort of then comes full circle back to the we don't know a problem we're solving. We're just sort of building to build. And then we reverse the 80-20 back to a negative 80-20, which is 80% is focused on production and let's just build stuff. And 20% now gets reduced to the, why are we building it? And are we sure we're building the right thing? And so there's, there's this weird sort of inverse relationship with the bigger a company gets and the further away they get from customers in the market, the worse they get at product. Yes, that that's very true. And we're in the insurance space. I've worked in the insurance space for years. And insurance companies are heavily intermediated, almost all of them, especially independent agency-focused companies. They don't sell directly to customers. They can't sell directly to customers because they're going to make their distribution channel angry. And then their distribution channel is going to sell somebody else. And in that environment, even defining who your customer is can be a problem right. because ultimately what you have to do is convince a distributor to sell your product to an end customer. And then that distributor owns the customer relationship. So do you build great products for the distributor and you sort of ignore or build 
just okay products mm-hmm. for the end customer or mm-hmm. the consumer. Yeah, those are... It's, it's a huge problem. And as a insurance distributor, which is fundamentally what Matic is, we are constantly putting pressure onto insurance carriers to build solutions to help us sell better. So that's on the technology side. So look, we need this integration. This is how we're going to fit it in. This is how we're going to market it. This is what we need from you. And they're very responsive to us on that side. But ultimately, if the insurance product that they're providing to us is not attractive to the end user, then we're not going to sell it. So that's a huge problem for any insurance company that is not selling direct is what's the balance between making my distributors happy and making my end users happy. Right. We were talking a little bit earlier about how sometimes having especially early product success can be just as challenging as early product, not necessarily failure, but it, you know, just m- sort of mediocre success. Mm-hmm. That it then becomes an expectation that you're you're going to acquire customers at the same rate, you're going to have the same level of, of retention, and the product is going to be able to continue to sort of evolve and grow and succeed at that same rate. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about you guys. You guys have been growing pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And so it sets a precedent that, well, we ought to be able to do this forever. Mm -hmm. And that puts an an odd sort of stress on the company and on the product teams. Absolutely. We've had a lot of success this year. We've grown a lot. But what we found is that it's a, what have you done for me lately? So next year, we've got to do the same thing. And one of the biggest challenges that we found when you have an unexpected success. So As a startup, you try a lot of things. You throw a lot of things at the wall, one of them hits. You grab that, you iterate on it fast. And what we discovered pretty rapidly is when something that you weren't expecting to catch on does catch on, a lot of times you have not instrumented the business. And by that, I mean you don't have the metrics that you need to make effective decisions about the success of the product and about what you should do next. And then so what you have is a product that has to grow, 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 because it's the one that has traction. Engineering says, okay, I need to slow down. We've got some tech debt here that I've got to pay attention to. Your head of growth is saying, look, we got to slow down and instrument this so I know what's happening. Your, you know, your administrative people are saying, look, I need these sets of reports now so that I can report out to my partners all the success that we're doing. And I'm saying, look, I need to do X, Y, and Z because that's going to get me the 3X growth, 5X, 10X, whatever you need next year to get there. And it's that unexpected success that you have to build the infrastructure underneath afterwards so that you can plan how to grow smart that's really been, been a big challenge. And it's a good problem to have. You know, A much bigger problem to have is not having product market fit. But having not designed the business or the technology so that you can measure it effectively causes you a lot of pain when you have to come back and do that later. Yeah. And in some cases, you don't always even understand when you have an unexpected success. Why did it work? Why did it? Why is it resonating? Mm-hmm. And that becomes a challenge because then it's hard if you don't get to that level of understanding, it's hard to then build upon it mm-hmm. and leverage it, right? Because then you go over and you... And you and you try to apply it to another area of the product or to an entirely new product, and you expect the same mm-hmm. sort of the same return and the same results. And when they don't then come, it's like, okay, well, you know, what was what were the attributes of this that made it that unexpected success? And why haven't we been able to sort of leverage and replicate that? There is also a danger of over-reliance on metrics. So metrics are vitally important. You need to know what's happening. You need to know why it's happening. 
But there's a dangerous assumption that I've seen, and this happens especially in large organizations that have people that they can throw at this with statistical skills, is the assumption that the only things that matter are the ones that you can measure. And only the things that you can measure are the things that matter. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that the sales culture that we've built at Matic, that is, our agents love working at Matic. They love selling the product, and it comes through in every conversation that they have. And it's almost impossible to measure that. Now, you can measure production, you can measure some other things, but you might glance at that and say, okay, well, I've hired X number of agents in Columbus. They're selling Y number of policies. Well, why can't I go hire Z number of agents in Phoenix and replicate this exact same success? Well, so much of the success is due to the culture that our VP of insurance and our sales manager has created, and that's going to be really hard to replicate if all you do is go out and set up a call center. And so while it's critical to measure these metrics, if you don't take a step back and look at some of the things that you can't measure, then it's really going to be hard to pick up that success and and push it somewhere else. Yeah, it's, it's that... Um it's sort of the fabric that holds it all together, right? That that is hard to explain, and it's hard mm-hmm. to sort of measure and track. And and it's that product joy component, right? Either, whether it's for internal users and and customers or external. Sometimes, as users of products, we can't even quite articulate why we like it and why we like using it as much as we do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think, and I'm not a big um, and you know, it, it sounds like we're we're just picking on enterprises as part of the conversation, and that's not you know entirely true. But enterprises do put in strategies that um, that represent the fact that they stay close to customers and care about customers, like voice of customer initiatives. Mm-hmm. I think if you have a voice of customer initi- initiative at your company, that by very definition means you don't get and stay close to your customers because otherwise you wouldn't need a VOC initiative. And then I, I'm I'm becoming less favorable of NPS mm-hmm. because I think that it becomes a it becomes sort of a crutch because it becomes well let's just get to a nine or let's just get to a nine five or whatever the NPS objective is for an organization. I'm not sure that actually represents whether customers enjoy engaging with you and are pleased by the experience in your product or whether they. You, you become a good at NPS surveying mm-hmm. and you get the re- you elicit the responses that you want, but I'm not sure one mm-hmm. equates to the other anymore. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Becoming good at collecting, becoming good at getting an NPS score of 10 is not the same thing as being good at customer experience. Right. I don't know if you've bought a car recently, but you'll discover that after you do, the dealership will inevitably, the salesman will inevitably pull you aside and say, look, you're going to survey after this. If you give me a 10, I'll cut $250, $300 off the, the price of the car because they've got so much of their comp on the back end tied into getting a high NPS. So any system can be gained if you don't understand what it is you're trying to measure. Right. And I think we, we often put these systems in place and they start out very pure. And then, and then they end up sort of bastardized over time because most companies are actually not that intentional about getting and staying close to customers and being good at product because being good at product, as we've talked about, is a multifaceted and multi-pronged 
effort that requires a lot of time, energy, and sometimes you come out battered and bruised to the process. Mm -hmm. And because you're going to go talk to customers and they're going to tell you something that doesn't align with your vision and roadmap for the product. Mm -hmm. You're going to talk to engineering and engineering is going to be like, well, we could build that, but it would be so long and so expensive that we'd we'd never want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in product, you can end up feeling like you're in this sort of vortex because you're having all of these conversations and you're the coalescer of all of this input, but that's what it takes to be a good at product and to have a successful product as a company. But many avoid that, and then we avoid it through sort of leveraging these these tools that that have now been created to say, well, look, our customers are happy because our NPS score is high. Well, I don't think any more of those things, you know, um, necessarily represent what they initially were intended to represent. Yeah, there's a certain cargo cult mentality to it. And we saw the same thing with Agile 10 years ago. All right, we've hired all these scrum masters. We took project managers. We said, you're a scrum master now. Now we're Agile. And just because you have the trappings of Agile doesn't mean that you've got the mentality, which is rapid iteration, which is self-organizing teams, which is a clearly organized product backlog with a strategy in mind. I'm starting to see a little bit of the same thing with product management, where you hire some people, you call them product managers, but really they're not. They don't have an intentional vision for the problem we're trying to solve, how we're going to solve it, and how we're going to execute on it. And they also haven't been given the authority to make that call and Mm -hmm. to make those calls, right? So the product manager goes out, does a little bit of research, create some, you know, some personas and some profiles and some stories, et cetera. And then they come back and then development still makes the decision about mm-hmm. what's what's going to get done and what's going to be in the roadmap or marketing still does or the earlier part of the conversation sales still does right mm-hmm. and so if they're not empowered as the coalescers of that information then you're sort of kidding yourself if you think that you actually have a product discipline you're pretending that you do mm-hmm. but until the product people are empowered to make those calls not much has changed maybe you're doing a little bit of customer validation and research better, but it's probably about the the end of the value that you're then getting out of it. One of the most amazing conversations I ever saw was my VP of product was talking with the CTO. And the CTO was asking for, I don't remember, 50% of the, for each release, we're going to take 50% out and we're going to dedicate it purely to internal dev tasks. And the VP of product looked at the CTO and said, okay, are you responsible for 50% of the revenue from this product? Dead silence. Because the VP of product knew he was responsible to the executives. Is this product going to perform in the market the way that I expect it to? And because he was willing to take on that responsibility, because he was the one that was ultimately responsible for the success of all sorts of things that were outside of his control, Mm -hmm. that allowed product to gain control over the vision. Now, we still prioritize things for dev, but each one was a conversation. Okay, is this piece of technical debt more important than this thing that we're going to deliver to the market? So when product is responsible for the market success of what they're building, that's how you get around that. And it's really the only way, and it does put a lot of stress on product management. And a lot of the enterprises that are putting this into play are not used to product having P&L responsibility for the things that they're delivering. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's when you know that you've you've either created or you've matured into a serious product organization mm-hmm. is when product gets the ability to call the ball and, and to say, we're going to take responsibility for this. We're also willing to be held accountable mm-hmm. if indeed we miss the mark on this. 
Absolutely. And that is, if you don't have the confidence that you have identified a market problem and that you can execute against that market problem, bring it to market successfully, then why are you pushing it as a product manager? If all you want to do is go out and collect user feedback and put it in a survey, then that's not product management. You know, intentional product management. And I really like that phrase because it indicates a level of agency, uh, a vision that we are, you know, from a product management standpoint, pushing throughout the organization. And you have to be comfortable doing that in a, generally speaking, an organizational structure where you don't have a lot of positional power. Developers don't report to me. You know, QA doesn't report to me. Sales doesn't report to me. I have to influence people, you know, throughout. I have to present my ideas. I have to bring people along. I have to make sure they execute, even though I cannot directly day-to-day go in, pull their commits out of Git, make sure they're building the thing that I want them to build. And it's that level of ambiguity that's so hard for people to come in. And I think that's why people drift into it from other areas, because you have people that maybe they were in engineering, maybe they were in sales and marketing, maybe they were in content marketing, and they saw that they wanted to influence that and were willing to take on that responsibility. Yeah, and I think we're, we're maturing to the point now where people who aren't in product but are highly impacted by doing product well, developers, QA, etc., they now want to be inside of organizations and be part of teams that do get product and and are good at product because it ultimately it makes their craft more important and also more impactful Mm -hmm. because if you're going to write code you might as well write code that is going to be used in the most efficient most impactful way possible if you're going to test code, you might as well be doing that against code that's going to solve a problem that someone cares about as a user on the other end, right? And so I think that we're finally getting to the point where the other sort of disciplines that product doesn't own but ultimately serve product and vice versa are getting to the point where they're recognizing, oh, this matters, this discipline matters, and I want to be part of a good product company and part of a good product discipline and organization as a developer or an engineer the most one of the most frustrating things the most frustrating thing is somebody breaking the build on friday and then going home but one of the most frustrating things is to spend months of your life building something that nobody ends up using and that is something that in my product life developers are always coming to me saying Did somebody buy it? Did somebody buy it? Did somebody buy it? And when somebody did buy it and start using it, they were so excited that they had actually created something new that had traction in the market. And that level of buy-in is is really incredible, and it's an incredible motivator for engineers. You know, we spend a massive part of our lives at work, and we want to have something. We want to make sure that the time we're spending there is is well spent or at least the people and the organizations that I want to work with are full of people. They want to make sure that their time and energy is well spent. And as product, you really do have a, a unique capability to make sure that everybody's effort is pointed towards the same goal and that that goal is going to solve a product or solve a problem inside the market. Yeah, and I think developers in particular got caught up in in the requirement sort of scope game mm-hmm. because that's the one thing that they could sort of point to to say, Oh, well, 
I did it this way because it, you know that was the requirement. So I sort of I met the requirement. The the requirement was the map, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's a there's an awareness now to say, okay, well, this is the requirement, but now I know, given the fact that this was established and the tasks associated to this were established because we have a product discipline above this, I now know that I'm working on something that by and large has a better chance of providing the user experience that we want to support the business than the way we want versus I'm just working against tasks and against some requirements that were the only thing that I had before that I could sort of leverage and sort of speak to to say, this is why I'm showing up to work today is to accomplish these things. Mm -hmm. So there was very little context around requirements and tasks. It was, this is just what you're going to do today. I think product gives those other craftspeople the ability to say, well, there's more meaning to this and there's more purpose to it. And I understand what that is. Uh, I, I agree completely. And that is why good product companies don't outsource 100% of their development. Because when you've outsourced your development, then you've reduced your developers to people that are going to do exactly what you said. I sent you a spreadsheet. It had 17 tasks on it. Did you do all of them today? Whereas when you've got an engineering and development team that is a critical part of the organization, we can have these conversations. We talk about context. We understand why. And regularly, the developers will come to me and say, well, okay, we could do it that way. But I think this is the thing that you're trying to do. And I think that this would be better. And it's that feedback from engineering, from design, from sales, all once again coalesce back through the product manager that ultimately lets us produce something that, that would be better than if I sat down, wrote every single requirement, placed every single button, and then I threw it over the wall and expected engineering to deliver it pixel perfect on, on the first attempt. So when when you are sort of seeking product guidance and insights, who do you pay attention to? What are you consuming? I, sort of in the broader broader product world? Yeah. The most interesting, I think the most interesting site going right now is Stratechery. Ben Thompson, are you familiar with him? I am. Now, I'm not a, I, I've not broken down and bought the newsletter yet, but I think that at a strategic level, he does some of the best thinking right now, especially in the continuing evolution of of product companies. He's done some great things around, you know, the differences between Google as a service-focused company and Apple as a hardware-focused company and why everything that those two companies do serves their vision of how the company works as a whole. So he does some really great work. You know, by and large, it's still a very artisanal craft. You know, there's not a lot of you know, this is the guy that's going to give you the roadmap to do it A to Z. You have to go out and get a little bit from all of these different places and then and then kind of synthesize it together. Yeah, I think one of the, the challenges we have as the discipline continues to mature is there are a lot of people now, there are lots of conferences, there are lots of things, the books, newsletters, sites that are popping up to try to, to position for the attention of of this burgeoning field. And some of them have, um, to put it gently, um, very little product experience. And I think that, that we run the risk of lots of people who are just getting into the craft, paying attention to and taking advice from mm-hmm. 
people that have figured out how to market it well and figured mm -hmm. out that there's an opportunity there, but have very little experience and sort of expertise to actually share um, th that we run the risk of people getting a bullhorn mm -hmm. that, that, you know, maybe, you know, unjustifiably, um, you know, haven't earned it and, and mm -hmm. don't deserve it. And there's always the danger of kind of descending in the same kind of a uh, doctrinal nitpicking that we get in the agile world. You know, it's the same thing we saw with agile coaches. You know, okay, now everybody's, now everybody's an agile coach. It's a very good. Yeah. It's a it's a perfect reference, right? Mm -hmm. That that pretty soon there there are lots of agile coaches and companies paying mm -hmm. millions, if not tens of millions of dollars, to consulting firms mm -hmm. to come in and help them be better at agile, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, okay, well, you understand the, f and this is why I I'm a little against sort of product experts mm -hmm. um, because. We know what the fundamental tenants are, right? If you get and stay close to customers and you, and you collaborate and you communicate with transparency and radical candor and you are synthesizing all those information, you don't need a lot of flowery other sort of language and, and philosophies around it, right? Mm -hmm. And what happened in Agile, and again, what happens in, in most things in business, because we're very flawed creatures, is we think that someone has a secret way of doing it and a special way of doing it that is going that is far and away better than the way we're doing it, mm -hmm. right? And I see the same risk happening with product, right? Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, oh, you're not good at product. Well, let me come in and let me help you get good at product. These people also have never been better at product. Mm -hmm. They can just convince somebody that they're incrementally better than they are. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then I'm not sure anybody wins in the end. Because um, I, I think even in the end, the consultants and the so-called experts don't really win because maybe they got paid for an engagement. But they're now not any better at helping somebody get better at product and the client isn't any better at it. And in the end, I'm not sure that anything, anybody wins or anything progresses out of it that, that anybody can point to and say, yes, I'm proud of this. A, a consultant can never tell you what kind of company you should be. That's something you have to decide internally. You have to decide the problem you're solving, the customers you're, you're facing. Now, consultants can be very useful for process problems. They can be very useful for being a third-party voice to tell you to do the thing you already knew that you needed to do, right. which, which is valuable in and of itself. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves just because there's always a temptation that somebody else has this secret knowledge, and if I pay them enough money, they will come in and they will impart that secret knowledge to me, and now I will know how to do product. I think it's more likely that it's just going to evolve over time. You know, certainly... There's a lot of the, uh, you know, the scrum snake oil still being sold out there, but I've seen companies just get a lot better at it. You know, they, they've seen what works. They've seen what hasn't worked. I think we'll see a slow evolution. Experience is still the best teacher. Absolutely. And what I think we've started to see slowly is a leakage of some of the best ideas from the tech world into sort of the wider enterprise world in thinking about some of these systems from a product standpoint as opposed to a project standpoint. But I think it's going to be a long and slow process. Yeah, I agree. Andy, thank you for joining me. Appreciate it very much. If uh, people want to look you up and sort of, you know, uh, talk about product more, can they find you on, on LinkedIn? Where do you want people to sort of uh, hit you up if indeed people want to continue the conversation? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter, but mostly as a consumer rather than as a producer. So uh, just... In these days, that might not be a bad thing. It is. Twitter is a cesspool. 
but yes, yeah, you can all you can always hunt me up on LinkedIn. You'll find me at a lot of the product events here in Columbus. The the Lyft conference I attended earlier this year was was very very interesting for me. Uh, and I hope we can keep building this discipline here in Columbus. Andy, thanks very much. All right, thank you. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.